The scripture for today's sermon comes from Genesis 3, 1 through 7. The word of God speaks to us. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. This is God's word to us. Thanks, Molly. Hey, good morning. Um, I know a lot of you. I, I, I'm getting to know a few. My name is Dave. I'm one of the pastors here at Frontline, and I have the honor of continuing to preach this morning as we uh, are working our way through the book of Genesis. In this first 11 chapters of Genesis, we're studying in this series that we've called uh, Genesis Recovering Our Origin Story. And so let's pray with one another, for one another, um, you for me, me for you. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this moment and the gift that it is to be with one another. We also thank you for the gift of your word that you speak to us. And so to worship with one another, to, to pray with one another, and to sit under your word together is a grace. And we pray that as we do that, you would help me serve my, my family in Christ and, and the friends here in the room to proclaim truth and I, help, I pray that you would help all of us to have like soft hearts, open eyes to, to receive and see what you have for us this morning. We pray all this in Jesus' name, God's people said. You know, whether it's really old stories like Homer's Iliad or Shakespeare's Romeo and Juliet, um, maybe a little bit newer stories like... Uh, Spielberg's Schindler's List, which I have, uh, I must confess, never had the courage to watch. Um, or bestsellers right now, like David Grant's Killers of the Flower Moon. Like, there's something about a tragedy that we gravitate towards. As hard as they are to enter into and to read, whether they be fact or fiction, we, we, we grasp tragedy because we know and we hold on to these stories and pass them on from generation to generation. We value them in a way because we know that they're stories that move us. Tragedies that are especially true stories, they help us see rightly. They help us grow in wisdom. They have the very power to shape our lives. And in our text this morning, which is a real day with real people, with the realest of consequences, is the first and the worst of all tragedies. The darkest day in history. 
a pastor, a theologian who's so helpful to me time and time again, a man named Kent Hughes. He wrote a book called Genesis, a Beginning and Blessing. And, and Pastor Hughes says this about our passage today. It is real history, but as primal history, it describes what has happened countless times through the ages. It is universal and wise people will listen well. So my prayer, my hope for us this morning is that we would be wise people and listen well because what is here for us in Genesis 3 is, is foundational. It's critical to even understand the very truth of Scripture, that it's, it's literal insight where evil begins in the human hearts. Everything that we see wrong in all the world in a real way traces back to this day. Patient zero as it relates to the great virus of sin and rebellion that affects all of humanity from this moment forward. And in the ways that we need to study it to get literal insight, there's also deep and profound symbolic insight as it relates to this story, meaning that it shines a light onto the very process of temptation that happens on this day, but happens every day in our lives. We need to know Genesis 3 to have good theology, to understand the very person and the work of Jesus. As one old pastor put it, before you can taste the sweetness of the gospel, you have to taste the bitterness of the fall. To rightly understand just how good Jesus is, you have to rightly understand just how dark this day is and what it means for humanity this day moving forward. But we also need to, to study Genesis 3 a little bit like a fighter who's studying tape of an opponent he's going to face. How do they attack? How do they strike? Where did past opponents go wrong? What's my enemy's game plan and how do I defend myself against temptation? And so all of this in Genesis 3, through the lens of three points, we're going to study this together. And the first is the dialogue and the deceiver. The dialogue and the deceiver. Let's pick up back in verse 1 together. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. Let's stop right there. We're so familiar with this verse, whether we've grown up in church and this was like explained to us on felt boards or, or baby Bibles back in the day, or even if we have like come to church for maybe the first time today, all of us have a, a familiarity with this story. And, and so it's right to actually read it with fresh eyes. And when we read it with fresh eyes, it's, it's natural to say, what is going on with the snake? Like, what's up with the serpent? And first, and, and just foundationally, out of the gate, we can say that the New Testament, the, the full story, the end of God's word, clearly identifies this serpent as Satan. Look at Revelation chapter 12, verse 7 with me. Now war rose in heaven, Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon. And the dragon and his angels fought back, but he was defeated, and there was no longer any place for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan. Again, in Genesis chapter 20, verse 2, Satan is described as the dragon, that ancient serpent. 
And as we study this story, what theologians have called the fall of humanity in Genesis 3, from the beginning, as we are introduced to this character, as he comes onto the scene, this serpent, we need to understand that a supernatural evil is behind everything that he's doing. Satan is here in this story. He is accusing. Evil is is speaking. Darkness is seeking to steal and kill and destroy, and yet... We can, we can see that there's disguise and deception even in his form. He's in a mask as he brings temptation. And since Satan is present in the form of a snake, it makes sense that Eve's response to him isn't to interact viewing him as a threat or intimidating or dangerous, but in the form of something that she had dominion over. So she's not alarmed. Surely she must have been surprised to hear whatever it was in some way, shape, or form, communication from the snake speaking to her. But she's not on guard. And as we understand this, we begin to see why the serpent is described as as crafty. That word crafty in Hebrew is pronounced arum. And there's a reason that it's there. It, It means subtle or shrewd. But it's there to contrast intentionally the very last verse of Genesis chapter 2 before the first verse of Genesis chapter 3 describes Adam and Eve as naked. And that word in Hebrew is arom. And so the writer of Genesis, Moses, is wanting us to connect these two words. There's a, there's a rhyme. There's a play on words there. The, the wife and the husband, Adam and Eve, the woman and the man, they're a Rome. They're, they're naked. They're nude. But this, this snake comes on the scene and he's a room. He is crafty. He's shrewd. So there's an intentional contrast. And we could probably understand it best this way. They're innocent. He's experienced. A room means crafty. It, it means this person knows how to navigate things. And it's not biblically bad. In fact, in like wisdom literature, we're called as followers of God to be crafty, this literal word, uh, a room. But it's, a, it's, it's something that can be used, a quality that can be used for evil purposes. And we're going to see that certainly here. Listen to what the snake says. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Immediately. Uh, This is recognized from this point that God has spoken. What has been happening in Genesis chapter 1 and chapter 2 is that God is speaking. And what follows every time is, is order and beauty and life. God speaks and there's life and there's order. And now the serpent speaks. And what we need to see is what follows is not life and order, but death and chaos. And the first thing the serpent says is, is actually a reversal of reality. He immediately attacks the word of God. In Genesis chapter 1 and 2, the context of this dialogue is that every single good thing in Adam and Eve's life was a gift that was given by the word of God. When Eve woke up in the morning, the sun that rose was a gift by the word of God. The flowers that bloomed, the birds that sang for her enjoyment, the 
invited her to lift up her head and remember that God is good. Everything, every day that was a good thing in her life was there by the word of God. Every night, the coolness of the night in that garden, the wonder of the moonlight, the peace of the sounds of the crickets, the glory of the stars was all there as a gift by the word of God. That relationship between Adam and Eve The glory of marriage, the beauty of their intimacy, the butterflies they each felt in their stomach as they kissed was a gift by the word of God. The generosity of God is just coming wave upon wave upon wave in Genesis 1 and 2. And remember what God actually commanded. Back in Genesis 2, verse 15 The Lord God took the man, he put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man saying, listen carefully, you may surely eat, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden. The profound generosity there. You have infinite yeses. You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of one tree, the tree of the knowledge of the good and evil, you shall not eat. Why? For in the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. And Satan comes and he makes more of a comment than a question. It's a bit of a trick question. It's there to bump Eve and, and get her kind of off course from the beginning because his tone, it's, it's incredulous. It's as if Satan is saying, can you really believe God? would say, you can't eat anything in this garden? Can you believe God would actually require of you to not be able to have anything here? And it's a perversion and a distortion because the reality of God's word is that there was everything there for her with one exception. God's undeniable generosity is warped before Eve to cast God who is profoundly indescribably generous as actually the one thing he's not, which is stingy and holding out. And it's Satan, Satan is introducing the reason of, uh, which is like an evil immaturity that believes a limitation on anything is a limitation on everything. And Eve initially disagrees but let's, let's listen closely to how she responds because we should be concerned if we're listening closely. The woman said to the serpent, verse, 12, verse two, the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the trees that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. And remember what was God's command. You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, But if you eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in that day, as you eat of it, you shall surely die. Eat of every tree of the garden, but one. Because if you do, you shall surely die. God's command is, is three times in Genesis 2 and 3 proclaimed by someone. God obviously says it clearly. It's his command. Satan totally perverts it. And says the opposite and, and, and questions the very heart of it. You shall not eat of any tree. But as Eve, from her own heart, speaks what God's command is, she gets it wrong in some profound ways that are easy to miss. She says, we may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden. 
the first thing she does is she actually diminishes, she downplays the very generosity of God. God said, you may freely eat of every extravagant generosity. And it's as if already the questioning of the serpent is taking a hold where she downplays the generosity and she's like, well, we, we can eat. But then she goes on and she adds to the command by exaggerating what God said not to do. God said, but if you eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. And Eve, she's proclaiming the command. And what does she do? She adds, she exaggerates. And, and God had not said anything about not touching it, only eating from it. But Eve adds, neither shall we touch it lest we die. God won't even let us go near it. And as we slow down, if you're like me, I begin to see myself here in ways that are uncomfortable. Because I think all of us, whether we're a two-year-old or a 42-year-old on the verge of disobeying, we often exaggerate what's being asked of us to justify that disobedience. Like, there have been multiple times in my however many years of being a pastor that I've sat down with a man in pastoral counseling and he has said something along the lines of, well, even if I'm tempted to lust, it's as if I've committed adultery. So what's the point in even trying not to look at porn? Wait a minute, wait a minute. God's word doesn't say being tempted is sin. You're exaggerating that to justify what your heart longs to do in disobedience. Or I've heard something along the lines of like, well, Jesus expects me to totally forget about the way that person has hurt and harmed me and the damage they've done in my life. So how could I even be expected to forgive? That's totally unrealistic. Well, wait a minute. That's an exaggeration of what Jesus has called us to do. We're not called to forget but forgiveness is recognizing harm that's been done to us. But extending the grace that we've received in Jesus, right? When we begin to think God's word is unreasonable or requires too much of us, we're so often exaggerating what he asks because our hearts are on the path to justify what we long to do in our disobedience. And when we find ourselves thinking that way, reasoning that way, when we sense we're in that place, we need to step back, we need to ask for the help of the Holy Spirit, and we need to move towards brothers and sisters in Christ, we need to get help and pray. But the third way Eve gets God's command wrong is that, that she softens and belittles the consequences, what's at stake. God's command says you will surely die, and, and Eve, her her rendition of this command is, lest you die. The difference might be understood as God saying, you're definitely going to die. And Eve saying, there's a chance that you might die. She's got a partial grasp of God's word. She's, she's downplaying the generosity of God. She's exaggerating the limitations God's laid out. And she's belittling the consequences and what's at stake. And all that sets her up for the attack of Satan. And I can't read this passage, and maybe you're like me, without actually having my heart gravitate towards what Jesus did when he was in Eve's shoes. Because at the beginning of Jesus' ministry, 
He was led out into the desert. He was filled with the Holy Spirit and he not in the beauty and the comfort of a paradise garden, but in the scarcity of a desert after fasting for 40 days, Satan bombarded Jesus with temptation. And the question is, when you read Matthew uh, chapter four, if I were to write that and I were to, to lay the stage of Jesus facing off with Satan in a battle where where Satan was bringing temptation towards Christ. In my mind, if I were to invent that story, I would have Jesus fight back in some epic way, right? Jesus called down a, a legion of angels. They wreck shop on Satan. Or, or, or Jesus manifested. There was this, this revealing of his glory and light shined out and Satan shrieked away. The true story is that Jesus quoted Deuteronomy. Three verses in Deuteronomy, the word of God that Jesus held on to as precious. Jesus battled the temptation of Satan himself by wielding the word of God. The first, the primary verse that Jesus uses was Deuteronomy 8.3, where he says, man shall not live on bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. So when you look at your life, Christian, when we look at the daily secret time alone that we have with Scripture, or the beauty of, of how we pray or read Scripture as a family and how we engage in family worship, or the, the sacred moment where in our discipleship groups we're getting together with sisters or brothers in Christ to talk about our lives, but also Talk about scripture or these moments where we gather as the family of God to honor God's word. We must have God's word planted in our hearts. We must know it, not loosely as Eve does here, but as commanded by God for like a multitude of reasons, but, but certainly that we may have a defense against the temptation of our enemy. But Eve's, Eve's loose hold of God's word, it opens her up for attack of Satan, and we see that come in verse four. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. The, the language I learned this week in Hebrew here is, is just jarring, right? God said, you will surely die. And Satan's claim here is literally not, you shall surely die. My, my fifth grader is learning negative numbers, right? Right now, that's what he's studying in math. And it's like, this is, this is the negative version of what God is saying. It's the exact opposite. It's an abject, complete, bold denial and opposition of the word of God from the serpent. We understand why Jesus, to a group of people who were opposed to his mission, his ministry, his very purpose, listen to what Jesus says to them about who Satan is. John 8, 43, Jesus says, why do you not understand what I say? It's because you cannot bear to hear my word. You are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning. And does not stand in truth because there is no truth in him. 
When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. Surely Jesus has this moment in mind when he's describing the reality and the character, the very essence of who this serpent is. A liar, a murderer from the beginning. And the first lie Satan speaks in scripture is a lie that still resounds from darkness and echoes in our heart as temptation today. The lie is, there are no, don't believe what God says, there are no consequences to disobedience. God has no claim on you. The lie is, what God says is untrue. The lie is, hey, God isn't generous, he's actually withholding from you. The lie is, to actually experience true life, you have to do that apart from God, not under his rule. And this lie has tempted us to stray from the very beginning, but the word of God again and again and again holds out the truth that rebelling against God, rejecting God, running from God, which all can be just captured by that one word, sin, that the that has dire consequences. That, that when Paul, the Apostle Paul, writes in Romans, the wages of sin is death, he has this very moment in mind that the word of God is life and to reject and run from that is the path of death. But Eve's not so sure. She's beginning to question. She's had seeds of doubt planted in her heart and despite everything in creation, wave upon wave of the goodness of God, communicating the generosity of the word of God, Eve begins to think God might indeed be holding out. The second thing, the descent and the damage. Picking up in verse six. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate and she gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate then the eyes of both were opened and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made for themselves loincloths. Theologians are going to point out here something interesting which there's, there's like a multifaceted temptation to Eve that, that is wise for us to consider because we're tempted in the same way. Sometimes our temptation is, is a real physical appeal to something. Eve had an appetite and there was a promise for that appetite to be met. The food looked good. There's also an emotional draw in her temptation. The fruit's beautiful. It was a delight to the eyes. I'm reminded of, of what was likely said first by the old pastor John Calvin when he said, all that glitters is not gold. But Eve is seeing a lot of gold here. And she's drawn to it. And finally, there's, there's even a spiritual temptation with Eve here. And the tree was to be desired to make one wise. She wants to achieve this plane of existence, this higher level. She's been made in the very image of God. There's nothing like her and Adam in all creation. But she is beginning to believe there's actually heights to be reached away from God. Not in worship of God. And so the act happens and the act itself is like kind of 
plainly described without detail or fanfare. She took of its fruit and ate. She also gave some to her husband who was with her. He ate. She took, she ate, she gave, he ate. That's how it went down. And it's, it's really good for us not to overlook the fact that Adam was, as scripture says, with her and he ate. See, in the Hebrew, it's really clear that Satan's speaking in, in all this passage, he's speaking in the plural. So it's right to understand that Adam was present, yet we don't hear from him, yet his silence should speak volumes to us. Unlike what has been wrongly taught by even some of the church fathers, Adam was not like away working on his memory verses. Adam was not like somewhere else in the garden writing some worship songs. He was not like queuing up the chosen to watch together and popping some popcorn. And then he walks onto the scene and he's aghast that, that Eve is sitting and his, his mouth drops and she shoves the fruit in his mouth. And it's like, gotcha, you know? And Adam was just blameless in the whole thing and Eve gets the blame. No, he, he was there passively watching everything. And he was supposed to be working, right? Cultivating. And he's supposed to be what? Keeping, guarding. And the New, the New Testament reiterates that Eve, Eve was deceived. She was tricked. But Adam went along with the crime. And what happens when they go through with it is that it's, it's what happens anytime we sin. There's, there's an overpromise and it underdelivers. It's a letdown. It's a tragedy. Their eyes were open, scripture says, meaning they did. Satan said they would come to a new understanding and they did come to a new understanding. But now they're seeing that everything that once was right, their eyes are opened and their eyes are open to the fact that everything's wrong now. Everything's, everything's gone off the tracks. And he said that they were going to come to a deeper level of knowledge. And they do have new knowledge, but now they know that they're naked. And this tragic irony, Satan says, you can be like God and know good and evil. They were already made in the image of God. They were so like God in, in a unique way in all creation. But now they do know evil because they've experienced it. They've lived it out. They've tasted it. They've committed it. And and it's sad because they've gone from naked to naked in, in a tragic way. They were naked in a way that they had nothing to hide. And now they're naked in a way that they're totally exposed. They were naked in a way that they had integrity. And now they're naked in a way that they have guilt and shame. They were naked in a way that they had intimacy with one another. And now they're naked in a way where they become alienated from one another. They were naked in a way that they had nothing to fear and they were safe. And now they're naked in a way where they're afraid and exposed. And they know not just that they're naked, but they know death. See, when God said, don't eat from that one tree because you will surely die, we ought not understand that as there's some poison in that fruit that's going to cause you to drop dead in that moment, but that spiritual death in the blink of an eye and physical death now is a certainty because of the rebellion against the word of God that is life. So the third and final point for us today, what comes next is the division. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of God among the trees of the garden. 
But the Lord God called the man and said to him, where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. God being in the garden is, is not new in this moment. Like to rightly understand the, the glory of the Garden of Eden is to, to view it like we view the temple in the Old Testament. It was a sacred place that, that God's presence constantly dwelled. They had heard time and time again, surely, God approaching his presence in the garden. And time and time again, that brought up joy in their hearts. But now they're filled with dread because God's near. And so they hear him coming near and they hide, which is heartbreaking and ridiculous. Hiding from God then and now is a total impossibility, but for the first moment now in our sin and every moment moving forward, time and time again, we try to hide from God's face in the midst of our sin as if that's possible, as if he doesn't know us through and through, as if he doesn't know where we are and what's going on more than we know where we are and what's going on. So that question, where are you, isn't for a minute like, hey, I can't find y'all, would you come out? It's God we're talking about. That question, where are you, is a call to, to move towards God to stand in his presence, that, that hiding in the darkness of sin and shame, to move towards God once again, to know light and truth, to receive judgment and help and grace. Adam answers in verse 10, again, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. And God said, who told you you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? And Adam said, the woman who you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate. It's, it's like a gut punch to hear that in light of what we looked at last week. When, when God walked Eve down that aisle and Adam saw her for the first time, this is bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. He breaks out into poetry. His heart is, is overflowing in love for the glory of his bride, and then here, cold, cowardly, throws her under the bus. And, and catch it, like you, you, you heard it, Adam responds to God by, by blaming God and Eve. This, this woman you gave me, she gave the fruit for me to eat. It's your fault, God, and it's her fault. Don't look to me. I'm a victim here. And then God engages Eve, verse 13. The Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you've done? As if to say, do you know what you've done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. And I think Eve's response is not as dishonorable as Adam's because there's truth in it. The New Testament reiterates that Eve was deceived. She was tricked in this moment in a real way, but she too is blaming, right? The devil made me do it. There's no repentance from either of them. There's no contrition from either of them. And to blame things on God or to blame things on others is from this moment forward a default of the fallen human condition. And we hear it from our own mouths 
if we're listening and we hear it from those around us in light of our own sin, God made me this way. I would obey, but you know, my background. I'm, I'm Irish, that's Scottish, that's why I have a temper. Or you know my family, you know how my parents raised me, that's why I fill in the blank. Or I would obey God if it wasn't for my circumstances. Well, if this wasn't going on with other people around me, then I would be able to do this, but I, I can't obey, I can't follow God's word because of others. Or of course, we, we hear often, well, I would obey God, or the reason that I, I sin, the reason that I rebelled is just that the, the devil made me do it. I was tempted. What could I do? When we hide behind these excuses for our sin, it's, it's good to look to God's word, specifically Jesus' little brother, James, when he writes to the church, James 1. James says, let no one say when he's tempted, I'm being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil and he himself tempts no one. But listen to what James says. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin when it is fully grown, brings forth death. He just summed up what happened here in the life of Adam and Eve and our reality ever since that we followed this path, each and every one of us. We can't blame God. We can't blame others. We can't even blame the devil for our sin. It's ours and ours alone. That's the bitterness of this story. But here's the sweetness of the gospel. There is one person who actually never walked down this road, who never rebelled against the word of God, who perfectly obeyed it. That's Jesus, the son of God. But he's also the one person who said, I'll take the blame. It's not mine to take. I never sinned, but your sin, the blame that, that everyone denies, but it's a reality for, for Adam and Eve and each and every one of us. The good news is that Jesus Christ, the son of God, he freely says, I'll take that blame. The goodness of God was questioned at the beginning of the story and the beauty of what's to come is it's as if to say, God's saying, hey, you wanna question my goodness? Wait and see what I'm gonna do. Wait and see who's on the way. My very son, who's perfect, is going to do what no one, everything that Adam and Eve did wrong, he's going to do right here. They, in a garden of paradise, didn't believe and trust God's will. But Jesus, in his own garden of darkness in Gethsemane, he's going to pray and he's going to say, Father, would you please take this cup from me? Would it pass from me the cup of actually the punishment for our sins, the blame that we deserve? But he says, your will be done, not my will be done. When Adam and Eve reached out and took from that tree and, and brought us death, Jesus freely gives his life on the tree of the cross to bring us life. 
And when Satan says, hey, take and eat, and he tricks us and says, hey, you're going to receive life, but that brings death, Christ Jesus in grace, what does he do at the table with his friends before he goes to the cross? He once again says, take and eat. But because of who he is and what he's done, he's saying, take and eat. And because of what I have done, my work, who I am, you take and eat and receive life because you take me That's who you need to take hold of. That's the promise of eternal life. That's the promise of true wisdom. That's the promise of of the goodness of God as you take hold of me, Jesus says. Now, as they were eating, Jesus took the bread and after blessing it, he broke it and he gave it to the disciples and he said, what? Take, eat. This is my body. And he took a cup. And when he had given thanks, he gave it to them saying, drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. See, now in Christ, we can take and eat, but we take and eat, we stand. We stand in faith that our sins are forgiven. We stand in hope that Jesus will come again. We stand in love that Jesus laid down his life once and for all, that we can have life forever in him. Let's stand and pray. Heavenly Father, for my friends in the room who are just here maybe exploring Christianity, want to learn more about the Bible, the claims of of God's word, who you are. I pray that by the power of the Spirit, they would hear the beautiful question, where are you? That you call out to them. A question that's inviting them to to be known, to come out of life, to, to to come out of death and come into life, to come out of darkness and come into light. That you know them, God, through and through. You know them better than they know themselves, but you long for them to live eye to eye with you, knowing truly what they were meant to always know, that true life, abundant life, is, is only possible when we take hold of Jesus. So lead them, Spirit of God, to, to not follow the, the path of Adam and Eve in the story, to, to cast blame on others, but to, to actually say, I have sinned, I need forgiveness. Jesus, will you forgive me? believe in you as Lord and Savior and receive the free gift of life now and life and forever in you, Christ. And for my friends here that are family in Christ, as we come to the table to take hold of the bread and wine, would you help us be aware, Spirit of God, in areas of our life that that are rebellious, that are running away from life, that we need to to recognize and repent of and receive your grace and mercy. And that we would celebrate who you are, Jesus, and what you've done. We pray this in your name, Christ. Together we say.